This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The leader of the Colorado Department of Natural Resources is stepping down after five years. Mike King navigated contentious fracking issues on the oil and gas task force, butted heads with the EPA over the Gold King mine spill, and brokered a first-ever water plan for the state. He starts his new job as director of planning for Denver Water next month. Mike King, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Controversy over fracking has been center stage during your tenure, uh, and despite the task force set up to find common ground, it's still contentious. Uh, Next week, the state's Oil and Gas Conservation Commission will vote on two task force recommendations, uh, one regulating so-called large-scale facilities and the other requiring operators to register with municipalities. Uh, They've been negotiated and revised, and, and no one seems happy with either of them. Do you think they're still useful measures? Oh, absolutely. I, I think we're making some real progress. Um, this is the sixth or seventh uh, rulemaking that I've undertaken while I've been at DNR um, under Governors Ritter and and, um, and Hickenlooper. They have a tendency when you get to the close to the finish line to have people come together and, and maybe find a little more consensus that they had uh, than earlier on. And I think we're getting to that point. I think we're going to see that this is an important step in facilitating early discussions between operators and, and communities and interests in communities, I, I think this will be um, an important piece of a very complex puzzle um, going forward. Uh, Governor John Hickenlooper, though, told Colorado Public Radio last week that the angrier the two sides get uh, of the fracking debate get, the closer they come together. Are you seeing that? I, I think that um, there is an evolution in the in the rulemaking process, and, and you have to deal with um, people getting their emotions out, feeling frustrated, because when you're when you're working through these rules, you tend as, as a regulator, as a policymaker, to try and find the middle ground. But the people who are talking to you are not from the middle; they're mm. from the fringe of each perspective. And so, as you as um, you get to the finish line, um, the people in the middle begin to, to speak out a little bit more in support. And I think we're seeing that. And I think we're going to have more support than maybe we did a month and a half ago because of the hard work of the OGCC and my staff finding some common ground on these things. And it seems these rules and regulations are very important because people live next to these places. And this is something that that is impacting all of uh, people in Colorado. Absolutely. And it, it, it's, it should not surprise us that an industrial activity in areas where people live and play um, is creating conflict. Um, there is an inherent tension in this activity in these, in these areas in Colorado. And I think it's in all of our best interest to figure out how to resolve the majority of these conflicts. Um, we'll never resolve all of them. And I don't think that's um, an objective that, that, that really is feasible. But I do think that um, the key to working through these issues is creating processes by where people can have these discussions, have their concerns heard um, early on in the process and understand what activities can be taking place. And then minimizing the impacts through the best regulations in the country to minimize traffic, to minimize the odors and the noise and those kinds of things. And, and we're doing that in Colorado. But was the task force successful? Uh, It was set up to keep anti-fracking measures uh, off the ballot. It seems likely that there will be a ballot initiative next November. Did the task force fail in that regard? Well, I I think that um, the tenor of the discussion has changed over the last two years. How so? Part of it is is a result of this task force and people beginning to get more comfortable um, with this activity. Any Anytime there's a new activity, especially an industrial activity, you have to deal with the unknowns. And so that creates an uncertainty and, a, and, a, and an emotive blowback that we saw early on. 
Um, I think people are beginning to understand the real impacts of oil and gas. Yes, they are real, um, but they're not the end of the world for these communities. The other part of it is, is frankly, we're you know under $30 a barrel for oil. So what we're also seeing is that the activity is slowed down and the communities are having an opportunity to digest this in a manner that's a little more orderly than it was when we were looking at $100 a barrel and it seemed like a, a drilling rig was popping up in everybody's backyard all at once. So these ballot initiatives, you think, were, are a way of communities saying, stepping back a bit and, and looking at what's actually going on. I do. And I, and I think there are, um, I mean, obviously, the, 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 the proponents of, of dramatically restricting oil and gas development have filed um, uh, ballot initiatives. They are moving forward. Um, but I don't get the sense that there is the same broad um, political support. I don't get the sense that there's the same money supporting mm. this uh, effort as, as what we were um, concerned about last time. And again, there are still uh, cases in front of the state Supreme Court that are dealing with this issue. That's right. And that, that'll be key to understanding uh, whether we get clarity about the relative role of local versus state regulation. Um, the questions are fairly narrow in front of the Supreme Court regarding moratorium uh, and uh, and bans, but the Supreme Court does have the opportunity to provide some guidance about the relative jurisdictions between those two, and and that will help clarify the issue going forward as well. Director King, in August of 2015, a cleanup crew working for the Environmental Protection Agency accidentally released three million gallons of wastewater from the Gold King Mine near Silverton into the Animas River. The EPA claims that the Colorado Department of Natural Resources signed off on the work they were doing there. You dispute that. What exactly was the state's involvement? This has been an interesting, um, from, from day one, I've, I've never experienced a, a, an environmental impact like Gold King. Um, it, it, in the grand scheme of things, the long-term effects on the resource itself are going to be fairly small. Um, the long-term positive impacts is it raised awareness of this issue at a national level. Um, the state was not involved with um, the Gold King mine. We, we had a contract on an adjacent mine yeah. to put in some bulwark. It was a $25,000 contract on an adjacent mine. We happened to be in the area um, on the day that this occurred for, for about 20 minutes before the event. We were not there when it occurred, but we, we were not a contractor on the Gold King. And um, we just felt that it was important that the record reflect what our um, involvement in the area was, which is accurate, but not on the Gold King. We had no authority to direct any activity there, and, and we did not. Who's to blame then? Well, you know, there, there's an element um, when, when that occurred, um, when you have a job like mine or, or, or you work in a similar position in EPA, there is a little bit of there, but for the grace of God, go I. Because EPA was there doing the right thing, trying to clean up um, a historic mine site. Um, and so, um, you know, you, you can look back to, to these kinds of events when we had the Macondo in the, in the, in the, in the Gulf Coast. There are just things where Mother Nature um, throws you a curveball that you didn't expect. There's a, there's a technical breakdown, some engineering that wasn't done exactly right. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, um, EPA's accepted responsibility for this having occurred. Um, I think that's the appropriate thing, but I also think it misses the point that that it should not um, in any way be seen as um, an indictment of EPA's efforts to clean up mines across the, the Rocky Mountain West. And, and there are thousands of those abandoned mines in Colorado. Uh, the town of Silverton is considering a Superfund designation. Uh, wh- what do you think is, is the best approach to clean up these mines? 
I do think at the end of the day, Superfund is the right way. And, and it's, it's, um, in some of these communities, it's seen as a stigma and that it creates a, a kind of a tourism blight on their community. But it's the only source of funds available at that level to, to, to deal with the magnitude of these issues. And so Silverton is moving in that direction. I commend them for doing that. I think that is the, the right way. And we have some very positive examples around Colorado where Superfund efforts have, have done incredible things. Minturn, the Eagle River has, has come back to life and that community has really benefited. And so um, I, I think I think Superfund, if, if done judiciously and applied appropriately, um, will be the long-term answer. We just need more funding out of our um, uh, you know, from our congressional delegation, they need to get that done. And we need some work on Good Sam as well. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Mike King has served as the executive director of the Colorado Department of Natural Resources since 2010. He steps down at the end of the month to become the director of planning at Denver Water. Director King, in November, the Water Conservation Board approved the state's first ever water plan. It projects uh, Colorado's population could double by 2050. That's uh, 5 million more people taking showers and watering their lawns. Uh, at some point, have we maxed out our, our water conservation, which is something that I've, I've heard you talk about? Um, or can we continue to, to conserve and go lower in our water use? Well, I think we have to go lower in our water use. I don't think there's any other choice. Um, we cannot grow the next 50 years like we grew the last 50 years. And I think that there will be advances in technology. Um, I think that there are um, long-term savings, recycle, reuse, um, that will be at the forefront of what we do um, as a state to provide water to our communities. Having said that, I don't think anybody who, who is serious about evaluating our current situation believes that we can meet 5 million more people coming into the state of Colorado through conservation. New supply is going to have to be part of the discussion going forward. I think that's a given. And it's also interesting, 90% of our population lives east of the Continental Divide, but most of our water comes from the uh, west of there. Um, How can we provide water for a growing Colorado without diverting more water to the Front Range? Well, I, th- I think the question is, is yet to be answered, whether we in fact can do that. I think it is incumbent upon the Front Range to look first um, in their own basins for available supplies, whether that's through the ability to move water more efficiently, like you've seen the South Metro area do with Denver through the WISE agreement. Um, do we have new supplies in basin? Um, those need to be evaluated. And then, you know, longer term, um, is there water available? And, and, and how would you go out of basin to do that? that? That's always going to be the last option. But I also think that in this day and age with the challenges we face, no option can really be taken off the table. I want to turn back to oil and gas for a second. Your agency gets half of severance taxes collected from oil and gas in the state. Uh, Some environmental groups have said Colorado should collect more, that these taxes are too low. Where do you stand on severance taxes? Well, I think um, we're going to feel the serious pinch of... uh severance tax decline because production is, is falling as we speak. Um, there have been analyses done. Um, it is, it's difficult when you compare us to, to Wyoming. Wyoming has a much higher severance tax, but they have no income tax. And so it, it, the cumulative tax burden um, for oil and gas development, um, I think 
there is a feeling that it could be higher in Colorado. And I think it, it, you know, now probably would not be the time to have that discussion at $27 a barrel oil. But I think going forward, I think industry, um, if it's done in a, in a measured manner and thoughtful manner, when the value gets up, you, you might actually have uh, a sliding scale that severance tax would, would go up when the price of oil went above a certain point and, and maybe was decreased when it fell down to, to let industry um, absorb some of those costs as well. But I, I think I think the general consensus is, and I think even among industry, there are groups who think that communities would be more receptive to their activity if they saw more direct benefit coming to their communities through severance tax. What are you most proud of uh, during your tenure at the Department of Natural Resources? Well, there's, there's a couple things. Um, first, um, I've been blessed to work with some of the most remarkable people. And so um, I'm, I'm extraordinarily proud of the people who work at DNR um, and what they do on a day-in and day-out basis. Um, the, kind, of, kind of interesting for me, when I, thinking about this question, we opened Staunton State Parks. Staunton had been um, donated to the state by a, a woman who lived up um, on the property um, at Schaefer's Crossing, and she, she donated the property um, decades ago, and we didn't have the resources to open it up. Um, and two or three years ago, we, after, you know, other states were closing down their state parks um, through the Great Recession, restricting hours, we not only kept our state parks up and viable and didn't restrict anything, we opened a new one. And that was, that was a really cool day um, to be able to do that for the people of Colorado. Director King, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Mike King is the outgoing executive director of the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. When we come back, the demographic considered most at risk for suicide, white males over 65. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado saw an unfortunate record in 2014. That year marked the highest number of suicides in the state's history. And white men older than 65 took their lives at three times the state average. It's the highest rate of any group. Sylvia Canetto dug into that trend for a recent article in the journal Men and Masculinities. She's a professor of psychology at Colorado State University and also works in gender studies. Professor Canetto, welcome to the program. Thank you. Older white men are also the group most vulnerable to suicide at a national level. In your study, you call these sorts of statistics a paradox. Why? Okay. Um, older men of European descent, as you said, have significantly higher rates of suicide than any other demographic group in the United States. Um, their suicide rates are significantly higher than those of older men of other ethnic groups, as well as um, of women uh, across ethnicities. Why a paradox? Traditional yeah. theories have blamed uh, older adult suicide on the burdens and losses of aging and on depression. However, if you look at the data, you find that men of European descent, older men, have fewer burdens of aging. Uh, for example, uh, they are less likely to be widowed. They are more likely to have financial resources or better financial resources. They have better health. And their rates of mental disorders or depression are not higher than those of women. So um, traditional explanations do not fit the gender and ethnic data on older adult suicide. And, and give me a gauge on, on this. How much more likely is an older white man to take his life than, let's say, an older African-American man? Okay, if you look at um, men 
um, of European descent in the 70s. Nationally, for data between uh, 2009 and 2013, that rates of 30 per 100,000. Um, men of African-American descent within the same age group in their 70s at rates in the 10 per 100,000. If you look then at women in their 70s, their rates are at 5 per 100,000 or lower, uh, with women of African descent as being less than 1 per 100,000. And the, the picture gets even more extreme if you look at um, men and women across ethnicities in their 80s. Men's rates, uh, men of older, uh, men of European descent in their 80s and older have uh, rates of suicide in the 50 per 100,000, while um, women of African descent, uh, 85 and older, have rates that are below 1 per 100,000. You, you talk about this paradox in, in the recent paper published in the Journal of Men and Masculinities. You theorize that white men might be less able to cope with the indignities of, of aging. I, I, explain that to me. The, the term indignity of aging is a term that I found in literature. I actually okay. don't think it's a great term, but I used it because it is recurrent and I think it's part of the problem. Um, what I found is that uh, studies that were conducted to understand the personalities and ways of coping um, of older men who killed themselves, mostly men of European descent, found that they were um, at a narrower sense of self, at narrower way of ways of coping. They were described as being rigid, um, emotionally unaware, and emotionally constricted. Um, so there, there seemed to be less psychological resilience, possibly because men of older European descent may have been less challenged through life. So things are easier for them in a sense, more uh, successful business-wise, things like that. Possibly they may, may have had fewer opportunities in some ways to practice against adversities as a group. Um, there is also a, another important cultural piece to um, older men of European descent, um, brittleness and, and vulnerability suicide. What I found is evidence of what I call cultural scripts that make suicide by men of European descent relatively permissible and relatively in some ways positive or heroic. Um, there are three main beliefs uh, that are part of this cultural script that are dominant among European um, persons. Um, one is that suicide is acceptable when the person is old. The second one is that suicide is relatively permissible when a person is ill. And that the third and uh, component of this set of beliefs is that suicide is a masculine behavior. Um, these three beliefs together um, create a climate of permissiveness for suicide by older men of European descent. So, based on, do you study base your study on on, on general data? about white men or on research into specific suicide cases of white men, their, their health and, and, and their income? I've looked at both. I mean, I've looked at uh, my own and other studies of attitudes and beliefs um, that are dominant within the population, what people endorse, what people consider acceptable or not acceptable with regard to suicide. Um, I've also looked at individual cases of um, suicide by older men okay. and how their story was narrated. For example, in my article, I've looked at how the suicide by um, Eastman and by Thompson were narrated. Both were men of European descent. Eastman died by suicide at age 77 in 1932. And, and that's George Eastman. George Eastman. Yeah. He yeah. was the founder of uh, Kodak. Yeah. And Thompson killed himself in 2005 at the Hunter age of 67. Yeah. Right, Hunter Thompson. And it, what I did is to look at an analysis of how their story was told, both in the, at the time of their death as well as by later writers. 
And in both cases, you talked about indignity of age, and that was the language that was often used. In the case of Eastman, uh, there was a statement that he planned his death carefully to end disorderly life in an orderly way, and he was unprepared and unwilling to face the indignities of old age. Um, with regard to Thompson, um, similarly, he was um, described as having died as he planned um, with a courageous gunshot and that he was not going to suffer the indignities of old age. So there's the indignity word again and that masculinity in a sense that it's okay to be a man and to take your life like that. Right, that if you are a masculine man that you will not put up with the challenges of aging or the indignities of aging and that for a white man the dignified way to exit could be suicide. And we've covered extensively uh, on this program Hunter S. Thompson and, and, and his suicide uh, maybe there's a lesson in media then not not to glorify those sorts of suicide. Uh, you mentioned earlier this could lead to new ways of helping older white men avoid suicide. What, what would those be? I think that my, my the main lesson that I would like to kind of focus on is that high rates of suicide among older adult men of European descent are not inevitable. It sometimes seems to be the case that there's a sense of almost fatality about it. It's, uh, they are culturally determined and therefore they are preventable. Um, suicide prevention therefore needs to be paying attention to these cultural factors and cultural scripts. We need to increase awareness um, that certain dimensions of so-called white men masculinity script are dangerous to men's health and interfere with constructive coping and uh, may put um, men's survival at risk. And then we need, need to make visible more more specifically, uh, that so the so-called indignities of aging suicide script, as well as the belief, belief that suicide is a white man powerful response mm-hmm. to aging and illness, is problematic. The way we make it visible are multiple. We can do it via um, public campaigns, educational campaigns that target the population as a whole in, in the manner of a universal um, suicide prevention campaign, as well as more directly um, in educational modes addressing people who are at risk for suicidal behavior or, or the, who have already expressed suicidal ideation in, in incorporating this particular set of educational pieces in psychotherapy, for example. This is such an a, a interesting topic and a heavy topic. What got you interested in, in, in looking at this? Well, if you think about death and life, they are probably the biggest topics you can get involved to. <laughs> scholars from a variety of different disciplines contributed to this particular set of question from philosophy to psychology, sociology, medicine. But more practically, when I was um, a student in Northwest University Medical School, I was um, assigned to be a, a research assistant for a, a study on suicide. And so that kind of started building my expertise uh, in the field. And then I, once I, I spent quite quite a bit of time in it as a student, I then developed my own questions, which were more gender and cultural related. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Professor Sylvia Canetto's new article is called Suicide, Why Are Older Men So Vulnerable? She works as a professor of psychology at Colorado State University. Coming up, a Boulder scientist has gotten really good at finding black holes, including two in the same galaxy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A recently discovered galaxy could cast new light on our understanding of the evolution of black holes. Well, most galaxies, including our own Milky Way, have one supermassive black hole at the center. Galaxy J1126 has two. And one of them could be a kind of black hole missing link. 
Julie Comerford discovered this rare galaxy. She's an astrophysicist at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. It's great to be here. So a galaxy with two black holes is an anomaly. Uh, Scientists have only found 12 in the whole universe, and you've discovered four of them. Uh, What's going on in a galaxy with two black holes? Yeah, it's unusual to find a galaxy with two black holes. And the reason we think a galaxy would have two is if you take two separate galaxies, each with one supermassive black hole at the center, you merge those two galaxies together. So you create a new larger galaxy that has these two black holes in it. And so the two black holes will swirl around each other. Eventually, they'll be gravitationally pulled together and form a new, even more massive black hole at the center. But we happen to find this galaxy with the two black holes well separated before they actually merge at the center. And so these are galaxies colliding with each other and creating these these two black holes. That's right. These galaxies slam together. They throw stars every which way. And then the black holes are the final tracer of the merger. So the black holes are the last thing to collide and merge at the end. And you started looking closely at this galaxy, J1126, which is one billion light years away. And you noticed something strange about the black holes. And you talked about this just for a second. What was unusual? That's right. So a supermassive black hole is surrounded by a swarm of stars. So there are millions of stars buzzing around the black hole. And so there are these two black holes. One of them has the right amount of stars around it. But the other one was surprising because it had very few stars around it, about 100 times fewer stars than what we would expect for a supermassive black hole. So that was a big mystery was trying to explain why you could have a black hole with so few stars around it. So one black hole is is enveloped in stars. The other one is essentially naked. Uh, Yes. what, What are the possible reasons for this imbalance? So there are two possible reasons. So the first is linked to the merger of the two galaxies itself. So... During a merger of two galaxies, there are extreme gravitational and tidal forces that can actually strip away outer layers of stars from the sphere of stars surrounding a black hole. So it could be that the black hole started out with a large sphere of stars, but then most of them got tidally stripped away during the course of the merger, and that's why we see so few stars associated with it now. The second possibility is that the mass of how much stars is surrounding your black hole depends on the mass of the black hole at the center there. So maybe this is just a lower mass black hole. So instead of being a supermassive black hole, which has a mass of a million to a billion times the mass of the sun, this could be an intermediate mass black hole, which would have a mass of only 100 to a million times the mass of the sun. So if it's a less massive black hole, then it would make sense that it would have a smaller mass of stars around it. And so this is this is unique. You found three other merging galaxies. Has this phenomenon been seen in other ones? We've never seen one this extreme before. So that's what made it stand out to us. Usually we see a nice large mass of stars surrounding the black hole. So the, the small mass of stars is what made this one stand out, even over the other uh, 11 that we found. So this immediate uh, intermediate mass black hole, talk about that and why that is important and, and unique and something you're interested in. Yeah, so that's an kind of a missing link in the the evolution of black holes. So we have on on the on the high mass side we have these supermassive black holes. On the low mass side we have stellar mass black holes, which are formed after the death of a massive star. So the star goes through its life, ends in a supernova explosion, and leaves behind a small black hole, which has a mass of five to tens times the mass of the sun. So we've got the stellar mass black holes on one end, supermassive at the other, and then there's this kind of desert between where we don't find many 
black holes with with intermediate masses. And so that's the intermediate mass black hole. And so that's why it'd be so interesting if this galaxy turned out to have an intermediate mass black hole because they're so rare and hard to find. But we think they're they're the building blocks of of making a large supermassive black hole. And recently, a team of Japanese scientists identified a gas cloud that they believe may contain an intermediate mass black hole in our galaxy. Has anyone identified one for certain or, or is it truly this missing link? Yeah, no one. So that one in in the Milky Way hasn't been identified for certain. Um, But if it is an intermediate mass black hole, that would be incredibly exciting because it's it's here in our own galaxy. And it'd be the second most massive uh, black hole in our galaxy. And so it's just really difficult. It all comes down to pinning down the mass of the black hole. You want to know if it falls into this intermediate mass regime. And so there are follow up observations with telescopes that you need to do to figure out exactly what that mass is and whether it, it would be an intermediate mass black hole. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Julie Comerford. She's an assistant professor at CU Boulder. We're talking about a recent discovery of a distant galaxy with two black holes. Uh, Julie, I assume the next step then is to prove or disprove that this is a missing link, this intermediate black black hole. How do you uh, how do you do that? Yeah, so the, the next thing we need to do is pin down the mass of this black hole. And so we're going to do that using a combination of X-ray observations of this galaxy using the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is a, a space telescope, and also radio observations um, from the ground. So if we can get X-ray and radio observations, then we can constrain what the mass of the black hole is and figure out if it is this missing link intermediate mass black hole. And if we find that we are in the Milky Way where this uh, intermediate black hole could be that, that was recently discovered, how exciting is that for you? And what does that do for, for your study of the other uh, black holes that you've discovered? Oh, that means that these things must be everywhere. And it's it's been predicted that intermediate mass black holes should be quite common. And so if there's one in our own Milky Way, then I think there could be even several more. And so it 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 would give us some clues about how we should be looking for these things to find them more efficiently. But I really think they should be everywhere out there. Now, is that a paradigm shift for scientists then to, to think about this intermediate black hole or is it kind of common uh, knowledge in a sense? It would be a paradigm shift if we started finding them in, in large numbers. Uh, so right now, according to our, our theories, we think that they should be out there. But without any observational evidence, it's hard to know if our theory was wrong or if we just haven't been looking in the right places to find them yet. And you're thinking they're everywhere. That's your theory, right? That's yeah, yeah. I really I really do. So this this galaxy we were we were pretty lucky to to find this uh, intermediate mass black hole candidate. And so we have to uh, refine our 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 techniques for looking for these things in other galaxies to see if it is true if they really are everywhere out there. So who else is working uh, with you as you study these black holes? Is it just a uh, multiple scientists all over the world? Yeah, I I have a team uh, here at CU. Uh, I have a postdoc, Scott Barrows, who worked on this study, another postdoc, Francisco Mueller-Sanchez, and a graduate student, Becky Nevin. And then we have collaborators uh, across the country and across the world as well. I always like to ask this. for What are your thoughts about younger people and their interest in science and their interest in, in let's say, galaxies and black holes and, and people listening who just can't get away from the radio because they want to hear more about the, the galaxies around them? 
Oh, younger people are the best to talk to about this stuff. Their eyes just bulge as soon as you start talking about black holes. And so that's one of the real joys of, of teaching classes is catching students right on the, on the cusp of learning about these things and being really excited about it. And we've got a whole slew of, of telescopes. Uh, we're launching James Webb Space Telescope in a couple of years. So there's going to be a ton of new higher resolution data coming in. So it's a really good time for a young person to be getting into astronomy and the study of black holes. Hey, Julie, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Julie Comerford is an assistant professor of astrophysics at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And you can check out a video of what it will look like when our own Milky Way galaxy merges with Andromeda in 4 billion years. That's at CPRnews.org. When we return, a trip down memory lane to Colorado's golden age of radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. KCFR in Denver. Good evening and welcome to KCFR. We're glad to be here. We hope we will do you good with relevant public affairs and also music we can all get into, from Kavalevsky to Hendrix. And I'd like to welcome the community with these sounds of Mick Jagger. That was the first broadcast by KCFR-FM Denver in 1970. The station is now, of course, Colorado Public Radio. Other call letters go back much further, like KIMN and KTLN, for example. Don't Touch That Dial is a new exhibit about the golden age of radio at the Aurora History Museum. Steve Conklin had an advisory role putting it together. He's president of the Broadcast Pioneers of Colorado. Welcome. Good morning. So uh, let's start off here. Tell me about one of the earliest radio stations in Denver. One of the earliest radio stations would be uh, KLZ, one of yeah. the, the, the real beginnings. Uh, and Doc Reynolds was the, the key person behind that. Uh, KOA, uh, KFEL, which be, became Kim, you know, a number of stations. Uh, Denver and, and Colorado had radio stations as early as 1922 that were licensed. And KLZ, from what you, you told me, is that it was out of his home. He just had it set up in his in his back room. Doc Reynolds was a, a dentist, actually, in Colorado Springs, and he started an amateur radio station. And then he moved to Denver. And in 1918, he had a radio station out of his living room. His wife and his kids were on the air with him. <laughs> uh, and then in 1922, the Federal Radio Commission started licensing radio stations. So KLZ became a, a, an entity, Colorado's first radio station. And it was the 67th radio station in the country. So it was very, very revolutionary. I want to talk about another early pioneer of Colorado radio history, uh, Jean Ruth Hay, who was better known in 1940s Colorado listeners as Beverly. Her show Reveille with Beverly aired on KE, uh, KFEL and catered to U.S. servicemen stationed at Fort Logan. Hi there, everybody. This is Jean Ruth, radio's Beverly at Reveille the girl who gets the bugler up. And now I want you to meet Beverly of the movies, lovely Ann Miller, starring in Columbia's big new musical picture, Reveille with Beverly. It's in the groove, sweet and hot and jammed with jive, with the greatest collection of music makers ever gathered together on the screen. 
That was Hay introducing the movie based loosely on her life. Steve, who was Jean Ruth Hay? She was a student at CU who, yeah. who actually ended up going out of state to take some radio classes and came back to Colorado and went to the general manager and owner of, of KFEL and said, I want to do a radio show. And that was really unusual because at that point, women were primarily actors or actresses in, in the, the radio dramas and comedies. Mm. There really weren't women as disc jockeys. But the uh, general manager, Gino Fallon, said, great idea. Let's do it. And in March, uh, rather in October of 1941, her show debuted really just a couple of months before Pearl Harbor. Oh. And it was basically designed to, to broadcast to the soldiers that were stationed in Colorado. And and essentially, she found her way onto Time magazine. She, of course, had the movie based off her. Uh, so was she in Colorado very long? Things took off really quickly for her. And so she was here for, for just a, a very brief time before she was picked up and went to Los Angeles and helped consult on her movie. Uh, she did later come back and was on the air in Boulder in her later years. And so well known to people in Colorado back in the 1940s. Uh, You say during the 50s and 60s, before rock music kind of took over the airwaves, radio sounded pretty different. Uh, For example, here's Joe Flood. Hello, hello, hello. What a wonderful word, hello. Hello, everybody. This is Joe Flood just dropping around to say hello to you and to say hello to your neighbor and to bring you the Joe Flood Show an hour and 30 minutes of songs you want to hear every afternoon on KTLN. The first 15 minutes of our program is brought to you by your lead jewelers in downtown Denver, 16th of California, in West Denver, 8th and Santa Fe, in South Denver, Elvis and Broadway, in Aurora at 9980 East Colfax, in Inglewood at 3415 South Broadway, and in Pueblo at 440 North Mink. We'll be telling you about these fine stores and the fine Zenith radios to be found there. But first of all, let's start off the program with Jan Garber in the Tavern Song. Let's hear it. Will you, Jan? That does sound very different. Uh, who was Joe Flood? Joe Flood uh, came to Denver and, and was on the air in the late 40s and 50s. He was a classic pitch man. You heard there that he wove in those, those the, the t- talk about yeah, the radio the and the advertisement. Yeah. If you listen to any length of it, you hear more and more and more of those. Uh, he, like many of his contemporaries at that time, had some chance to host some TV shows because he was in, in town when TV came about. And to find hosts, they tapped into the, the, the radio hosts. Interesting. And so with the you were also saying there were live audiences sometimes. You had people putting on records for, for him. Well he was exactly. just the host man. And and some of them would have a piano in the studio and play the, the piano. You heard there it, it he almost made it sound like Jan Gerber was in the studio yeah. playing that. So they cr- tried to create the illusion of the artists being there sometimes. Uh it was just presented very differently and, and many of them uh did not make the transition well to rock radio when radio stations started playing a little different music. And now why, why, in your opinion, was that, do you think? Uh, I think it was a, a shock to their system. You know, you, we've, we've all probably heard the clips of, of the, the people breaking the rock and roll records because they were evil and were going to ruin society. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it was some of that same, same type of approach. There were a number of the, the, the big personalities in the 50s that, that literally walked out on their shows saying, if you're going to play rock records, I don't want to be here. I'm going to go someplace else. He's done. And so there was that sea change in, in the 50s and 60s as rock music took over. Uh, so many commercial radio stations were competing for listeners in Denver. Uh, Many tried to outdo each other with promotional events. Uh, Here's a jingle from KIMN in 1965. Uh, See if you can recognize who's singing. This is fabulous gear, number one in the West. 
that's, of course, the Beach Boys. Uh, tell me, why is this jingle historically important? It gives us a glimpse into uh, one of the legendary general managers in town, Ken Palmer, who's in the Broadcast Pioneers at Colorado Hall of Fame, was a promotional genius and, mm-hmm. and really did great things with the radio station. That, that radio station, at one point in time, had more listeners than the next six or seven stations combined. So it was a powerhouse. Absolutely. And part of that was Ken Palmer doing things bigger and badder than anybody else. When when a competitor would give away a car, he'd give away a car lot filled <laughs> with cars. Uh, and, and the Beach Boys fit in here because one of the competitors was doing a, a, a their big show of the year, this big concert that they were charging for tickets to. And they were having Freddie Boom Boom Cannon. Okay. And some other folks. <laughs> and Kim said, we can do better than that. So Ken Palmer went to his staff and said, find somebody else that we can go against that show. They found the Beach Boys. They brought the Beach Boys here that same day. They made it a free show and and made the competitor look small. Uh, so the Beach Boys had that relationship with, with the radio station. And I believe KIMN brought the Beatles to Denver for the first time in 64. The only time. The only uh, time, yeah. And and when the Beatles didn't come back on their tour the next time around, KIMN chartered a plane and took listeners to see them in St. Louis at the Beatles' appearance in St. Louis. So they tried to be very associated with all the pop culture things that were going on. And, and of course, radio DJs uh, at that time, again, sounded much different than they, than they do today. All in all, it's five hours of fun from Big Boss Radio 1. And tonight uh, on the show, we're going to have the Moonrakers here at 7.30, which should be kind of a gas. And Bob Dunn of the Astronauts will be calling us at 8.30, so it's going to be a big night in Denver. The request line's open, really rolling at 237-8888. Three minutes past seven, KIM and save a lifetime. And it's 27 degrees from the Kim Weather Tower. And friend of mine, it's here. I'm not putting you on. I'm telling you the gospel. It's here. The exciting new... That's Hal Moore of KIMN. Uh, tell me about Hal. Jiving and gassing <laughs> <laughs> Hal talking there. That's that's really typical of the, the fast-paced style of, of, of radio back then. Hal was a young disc jockey in Iowa when Ken Palmer, we talked about mm-hmm. him yep. a while ago, yep. uh, basically told Hal he wanted him to come to Denver and, and, and be on Kim. Uh, very energetic, very fast-paced delivery. Uh, he actually had a had a club called Hal Babies that they did promotional events at, which was, was cool. Uh, a lot of people know Hal because he was half of the Hal and Charlie team that was huge in Denver on KHOW for, for many, many years years. Uh, and Hal's actually still on the radio now. He, oh. he, he's on uh, Saturdays on a station called The Rock in Denver. And we can't talk about KIMN without talking about the uh, KIMN chicken, the mascot, uh, ubiquitous, I think, with many parts of Denver. So tell me about that. Kim Chicken was a, a, an idea of Steve Keeney, who was the general manager at Kim and some of his staff. And they uh, they thought this this mascot would be a, a good way to represent the radio station. And, and they went to one of the Colorado sports teams and said, wouldn't this be great? And they were basically thrown out of the office <laughs> and decided that they would go ahead and talk to the Nuggets. And the Nuggets basically gave the, the, the go-ahead for the Kim Chicken to be a presence at Nuggets games and to, to be a part of those events. And they, they took that and parlayed that into appearances at other events around town, and the, the Kim Chicken was huge. Uh, there, many people still have their little stuffed Kim Chicken doll. I know I have one. <laughs> uh, but the Kim Chicken was just a, a huge mascot for that radio station in the, the late 70s and 80s. Uh, we, we mentioned a bit earlier that, that during the golden age of radio, there, there were so many different stations, but there were also so many different owners. Um, but things changed, and, and that everything kind of consolidated. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, it used to be that, that one owner could only own an AM and an FM radio station. And over time, that changed. There was consolidation, and, and people were able to own more and more radio stations. So there were fewer owners, and, and, and 
it it took away some of the mom and pop nature that was was back in the day and and made it a little bit more corporate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I've been talking with Steve Conklin, president of Broadcast Pioneers of Colorado. Joining me now is Mary Jane Vallade. She's the curator of exhibitions at the Aurora History Museum. Don't Touch That Dial is on show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Mary Jane, uh, why did your museum choose to do this show? We have a large collection of radios that we've been able to use in other exhibits, but never on display all at the same time. And we thought it would be really interesting to show people, I guess, the must-have piece of technology during the time between World War One and World War Two. Everyone had one, yeah. Right. And we also have a large collection of, um, there was a gentleman named Walter J. Floyd, who was operated a radio repair shop out of the various homes that he lived in, in Aurora, in the, from the early 30s until the early 60s. And when he passed away, his estate donated his collection to the museum, his workbench, his tools, his supplies, pretty much everything came to us. And so we've never been able to put it on display in quite the entirety as we can now. And that's 1,800 individual radio gadgets from what I've read. Oh, it's amazing. There are tiny little pieces and tubes and um, belts and all kinds of things. It's really fun to lay everything out. So it's like you're actually going into his his workshop. Right. We've set up the workbench as best we could imagine it would be if he was had just walked away in the middle of repairing something. What are a few things besides the work desk that uh, people can experience in the exhibit? So we have radios on display that were from the 1920s until 1950. And it's really interesting to see how technology changed over that time, but also the design of the radios themselves. And early on, the wooden boxes were so intricately detailed. And then as plastic kind of took over and became the popular material, to see the functionality of those and just looking and being able to compare through the years is pretty interesting. I think about the interest in radio back in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and and I think about the interest in podcasts now. Uh, I've heard the phrase, radio isn't going anywhere, it's going everywhere. So is this exhibit only for those looking to reminisce about Colorado radio? Not at all. We sort of took the same approach as that, and with the advantage of podcasts and satellite radio, um, it's kind of coming full circle now, and so we wanted to be able to talk to people about where this started and how the radio shows first began and what those topics were. Steve, what are your final thoughts about the future of radio? Well, you know, with every technological advance, people say radio is dead. There are a number of those. And the, the truth is radio is, is not dead. Uh, there have been a number of, of years where there weren't a lot of things going on in the market, but there have been quite a few owner ownership and format changes recently. Yeah. And that's making things kind of exciting in Denver. There are a lot of listening options, streaming, internet radio. And because of all of the options, people have to have better content. They've got to work on on something that's more compelling to try to, try to draw people in. So that's the, that's the hope as we move forward in radio that the compelling content gets bigger and bigger and better. So uh, let's leave our listeners with one more station stinger from the 1960s, I believe, uh, from country station KLAK. Radio KLAK, greater Denver. Western and country. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Jennifer. 
Thank you. Steve Conklin is president of Broadcast Pioneers of Colorado. Mary Jane Vallade is curator of exhibitions at the Aurora History Museum. Don't Touch That Dial runs through April 17th. Do you have any Colorado radio memories? Let us know at the bottom of our story at cprnews.org, where you can also hear other radio jingles and sounds of Colorado's radio history. All the coin machines and record hops. Then when we tabulate, we play the song the great. Now another spectacular Kim Hit Parade. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks for joining us. I'm Nathan Haffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. K-I-M-N.